Thank you, Pastor Bill. It's been great to worship God with you this morning. And uh, man, it's awesome to see these young people declaring their faith in Christ, um, being buried with Him in baptism and raised to walk in newness of life. The fact that Jesus did that for them, the Holy Spirit did that in their hearts at first, that moment of first faith, and now they wanted to, to demonstrate that to following Him in baptism. Um, it was a joy for me and other elders to, to meet with each of these families, each of these kids, and to hear their stories and their, their testimonies. And we've got more next week. Uh, so that's exciting. So uh, come back next week to witness more um, followers of Christ being baptized. Um, I will not be here next week. And as most of you probably know, I will be out for the next two months on a time of sabbatical. And I'm looking forward to the rest. Uh, we are going to be traveling, visiting a lot of family. Um, and, and friends in other places. Um, a little bit of, uh, if, if the Lord heals my back up enough for it, maybe a little bit of uh, backpacking out there on the Olympic Peninsula in, in Washington State. But um, I will also miss you. And I want to miss worshiping Jesus with you. I've, I was kind of sitting there um, grieving that a little bit. But I look forward to coming back, God willing, in two months more rested. So I was thinking about this sermon uh, kind of like the final sermon before a, a, a bit of a break. And, and, and what should I emphasize? You know, what, what do I want to tell you? And if you think about it, a, a lot of sermons these days that you hear uh, really are about behavior modification. And so are a lot of, um, so is a lot of parenting, if you think about it. Um, we, we, we tend to sometimes focus on behavior modification instead of heart. And, you know, my dad was really good at that. Um, if, if he saw something in, in my life, my brother's life, my sister's life, or something we wanted to do that, that he realized was not pleasing to the Lord, he would just ask the question, who is your God? And, and man, you're like, oh, man, thanks, Dad. Kind of cuts right to the heart. Um, is your God the Lord? Is it yourself? Is it pleasure? Is it your friends? And, and so we want to get to the heart of the issue. And, and you know, it, 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 can, it can be tempting as a pastor to talk about behavior modification or how to navigate current events. And, and that tends to get people's attention because it's things that they're dealing with. And, and, and uh, I've had people encourage me, hey, I love your stories. You know, keep telling the stories. And, and the truth is, I love a good story. But, but you know, there's nothing more important that I can do than to point you to Jesus Christ. I mean, that is the story. Um, the fact that, that God would send His Son, God the Son, who would take on the, the clothing of humanity, who would limit Himself by becoming fully man, and who would walk on this earth as a human, but being God. Um, that just blows my mind. And then sacrificing himself on a cross, on a Roman cross, people who only had hatred in their hearts, killing him in a gruesome way, but on mission, paying the price eternally and spiritually that our, that our sins demand so that, so that God might redeem us and draw us back to himself. What an amazing story. And you know, the best stories we've got uh, have those themes in them, that the best movies you'll ever watch have... Christian themes underneath, stories of redemption underneath, stories of sacrifice underneath. 
And, and so the good news is that by preaching expositionally, that is just kind of walking through a text with you, I can't help but point you to Jesus Christ because according to Jesus, and, and we'll, we'll, in, in these words that Pastor Bill just read, according to Jesus, all of Scripture points to Him. And here in John chapter 5, Jesus talks about His identity. He calls God His Father, and He calls Himself God's Son. And He explains how the Father has given Him the power to give people who believe in Him eternal life. He claims that God has given Him the authority to judge the world at His second coming. And so verse 18 that we looked at two weeks ago makes it clear that Jesus was making himself equal with God. So you, you may have noticed this morning as, as we were reading through our, our text this week, um, as Pastor Bill was reading and as the words were up here, maybe you noticed repetition of a word. And you know, one of the principles of interpretation when you're looking at a, a passage and you're trying to figure out what's the main point, one of the things you look for is Repetition, you, you, it helps you notice the theme. So, so what word or words did you notice repeated over and over as Pastor Bill read, read this, this last text? Testimony. What other word did you hear? Witness. That's right. So the word witness I counted six times in our text, and the word testimony four times in these 17, 18 verses, right? And, and so, hey, that... That, that, that there's something there here, witness, testimony. And, and so I kind of looked it up in, in the original language and in Greek, and actually both words, witness and testimony, have the same Greek root, which is martyr. You think about that. Uh, we got that word martyr in the English language. Uh, that's a testimony. Someone who's willing to give their life for something they believe in. And so here we see a theme of witness. And, and notice the use of the words witness and testimony here in the first three verses. And again, witness and testimony have the same root. Witness is whenever it's a verb, and testimony is whenever it's a noun, but it means the same thing. Okay. So verse 30, Jesus says, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony, noun, is not true. There is another who bears witness, that's the verb, again, about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. So what we, what we see here in, in Jesus' words is a motif or a, a picture of a trial here. So think of a courtroom. Think of a cosmic, divine courtroom. And, and here Jesus invokes the Old Testament command about two or three witnesses in order to establish guilt. Because he said, if I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. So here Jesus calls some witnesses. Deuteronomy chapter 19 verse 15 says, a single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. And so we have this picture of a, of a, of a courtroom, of a trial, 
But Jesus is not the one on, tri- on trial here. The, the Jewish religious leaders are on trial for their unbelief. And it's easy for us to look back and criticize the Pharisees maybe. But you know, it's not only them. The, the whole world is on trial here. Most of the world, most societies on earth throughout history have rejected Christ as the Son of God. Now, plenty want to say that Jesus was a great sage or a great prophet, but all who reject Jesus' claim to be the Son of God are found guilty in this cosmic trial. And so in our text this morning, Jesus is calling three witnesses that testify to his divinity, that he is indeed the Son of God. And so the first witness that he clearly names, that he calls out, witness number one, is John the Baptist. John the Baptist. And so in verse 33, he says, you sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. Now the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the, the Jewish religious leaders, they were at first intrigued by John. I mean, it had been a long time since God had spoken through a prophet. And so now you had a, a, a prophet. This was exciting stuff. An Old Testament kind of prophet, you know, is an interesting guy, right? You know, eating locusts and wild honey and, and kind of crazy looking dude. And he declared that the Jewish Messiah was coming. That's something they wanted. They were excited about that. And so for a while, they rejoiced in his light. But then he started calling them out for their hypocrisy. They didn't like that so much. And the Messiah that he pointed to did not fit their expectations of a military hero. One writer said that Jesus didn't fit their image of what the Messiah should be. He didn't come in riding a white horse and ready to overthrow the Roman oppression. Instead, he overthrew money tables in the temple and exposed their hypocrisy. Jesus called John a burning and shining lamp. Now, there's some application, I think, for us here. A burning and shining lamp. And when we think about a lamp, uh, these days we have flashlights or, you know, maybe a little thing on your phone. But back then, they had something that you had to light, right? An oil lamp. You're walking around and you got to light it. And so somebody must light a lamp. In other words, we don't have that light in us naturally. Our lamp must be lit from outside. John wasn't the original source of light. He was shining the light of Christ, God's light, divine light. And so we're only going to be effective witnesses for Christ if the Lord lights our lamp. You've heard me say it before, but you can't give away what you don't have. So if you want to be an effective witness, you've got to be daily in His Word and and in prayer, the spiritual disciplines, in relationship with God so you might shine or reflect His light. It's not our light. It's his light, right? One pastor noted, quote, a lamp provides guidance and direction, 
but it's not the destination. It's not the center of attention. The lamp simply illuminates the way to something else. It serves a greater purpose. A lamp eventually burns out. Now notice the, notice the past tense in verse 35. John's lamp had burnt out. Now we're not quite sure, you know, comparing this with, with, with Matthew. We, we, we remember Matthew tells us that John ended up being arrested and was put in prison and eventually was executed. And so we don't know, you know, exactly the time frame here as Jesus is talking. Was John alive still? Was he in jail? But his ministry was complete. His, his lamp had burned out. Now he had, he ran his race well, as we've talked about in the past, right? John, John's ministry was finished, and that was to point people, prepare the way and to point people to the Messiah and say, hey, don't listen to me, listen to him. Well, here's the point here, I think, with the past tense, is that we only have a short lifetime to point people to the light. So let's make sure that we are abiding in Christ and using the time we have well. Well, John chapter 1, verse 8 says about John, he was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. Well, how exactly? What, what did John say to bear witness? What kind of witness did John bear? Well, in verse 29 of chapter 1, we read, John cried out when he saw Jesus, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So he's the Savior. And in, in verse 34, we read, John said about Jesus, and I have seen and borne witness that this is the Son of God. So John was a faithful witness to Jesus as both Savior of the world and as the Son of God. But Jesus says something kind of interesting in verse 34 here. He said, and I have seen and borne witness, I'm sorry, in verse 34 he says, of, of, chapter, of chapter five, Jesus says, not that the testimony that I receive is from man. So, so while Jesus called John as a witness, he wasn't the witness. Jesus calls a greater witness than John. He calls witness number two, which is God the Father. God the Father is Jesus' star witness against unbelievers. Now verse 32 that we read uh, at the beginning was actually not about John. It was about God the Father. In which Jesus said, there is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. And Jesus makes that clear, I believe, in verse 36, where he says, but the testimony that, that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you've never heard, his form you've never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. And we know that Jesus was the only human who had actually ever seen God the Father. And he was showing the world what God the Father was like. That's what John 1.18 says. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Christ has made him known. And in Christ, Jesus was able to do that because he was one with God the Father in nature, but he related to him as to a father in a submissive role to his father. 
Now let's look back to verse 30, where, where Jesus says at the very beginning of this text, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Now the, the statement, I can do nothing on my own, may sound weak. I mean, Jesus is God. He's all-powerful, right? What do you mean you can do nothing on your own? We need to remember that, that Jesus and the Father enjoy complete unity. They're the model of unity. So maybe an illustration of this in our day might be the model marriage. So let's say you're, you're a happily married couple and your teenager, your 15-year-old says, uh, hey, Dad, uh, I'd like to go on a road trip with my buddies, one of them 16 and just got his driver's license, down to Key West for the week. Now, the right answer would be, I need to check with your mother right? Unless it's just a, a no. But, you, you know, it, it, you, you probably would not be wise to say, sure, buddy, uh, without checking with your wife, right? Or if the converse is tr- would be true, you, you, you check with one another because you are one flesh, and you want your kids to understand that, hey, when I'm talking to mom, I'm talking to dad. When I'm talking to dad, I'm talking to mom. So, because kids are pretty good at figuring out, you know, the, the softy, right? You know, based on the situation. You know, some are more lenient maybe with, with you know, TV shows, uh, the other might be more lenient with, you know, food choices or, or you know, uh, I'm seeing some people nodding heads. So you figure that out. So the idea here is that we are one flesh. You're talking to a team. You're talking to one entity here. And I think that's what Jesus means when he says, I can do nothing of my own. Um, I, I show you the Father's works. Uh, so Jesus is ontologically, in essence, equal with the Father in nature and yet he submits in role as a son does to a father. And man, you can apply that to all kinds of things. Uh, you can apply that to marriage. Well, Jesus showed the heart of the father through his words and through his works. Why were the Jewish leaders condemned for not listening to Jesus' star witness when they could not see his form or hear his voice? Well, Jesus now answers that in the following few verses. In verse 36, he says, For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I'm doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. Now, Jesus did many signs, uh, but John focuses in, in the organization of his, of his gospel, on seven signs of Jesus, right? And so, we've already seen Jesus perform three of these Famous signs that John records in his gospel. Jesus had already turned the water into wine, which really showed his power over creation, right? Um, Jesus had healed the official's son. He had healed the paralytic. Later, we're going to see him bring a dead man back to life. And these Jewish leaders had witnessed miracles that could only happen through divine power. No human explanation. Right? And they refused to believe. They saw the works of God through Christ. And that is why they were condemned. And we're going to see another reason that they're condemned. And so Jesus is going to call one more witness, whom they were very familiar with, even though sadly because of unbelief it had not penetrated their hearts. And that is witness number three, 
the Old Testament scriptures. The Old Testament scriptures. Now these guys, these, these Pharisees, um, they knew the Old Testament scriptures. I mean, they, they memorized, they, they had rituals uh, that were elaborate before you could even write the name of God. They knew the scriptures, and Jesus says so much. In verse 39, he says, you search the scriptures because you think in them that you have eternal life, but it is they that bear witness about me. In other words, God spoke through the revelation of the Old Testament all about Christ, and you won't believe them. And he continues, he says, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Jesus, this is the only place that he says that all of the scriptures point to him. After he had risen from the dead, he told his disciples in Luke chapter 24, verse 44, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. So he, he, I mean, the prophets, the Psalms, the, the law, the Pentateuch, those first, those first books that Moses wrote, all of those point to me, he says. I'm the fulfillment. And, and you know, the Old Testament, uh, it can be a confusing book. I mean, if you just kind of flip your, your Bible open to some, uh, to, to some book or chapter in the Old Testament, some of it may be really clear. Maybe you land on a Psalm and you're like, yes, that's me. I get it. Uh, I need you, Lord, you know. But you may open up into a, a book called Ezekiel and have a hard time understanding. You know, what, what are these wheels? What does this mean? But all of it in its totality really makes two points clear. And the, the first point is that we humans are sinners against a holy God and we cannot save ourselves. And the second point the Old Testament makes throughout is that it promises a savior, a, a redeemer. Pastor Matt Carter puts it in these words. He wrote, the Old Testament describes in great detail this one who would come. He's called the promised seed, the lion of Judah, the, the son of man, the suffering servant, the Passover lamb, and the Messiah. These are just a few of the descriptions of Jesus that saturate the pages of the Old Testament, end quote. So the, the Jewish leaders, as they were searching and studying and memorizing the Old Testament scriptures, they, they saw the trees, but they missed the forest. So why? Well, first of all, it takes humility to believe that Jesus is the Son of God who became man to die for your sins. You're admitting that you are a depraved sinner who can't save yourself. You can't just turn your ship, right? You can't just get on the right path through your own strength. You are lost, and you can't save yourself, and you need Jesus to save you. You need someone else to save you. And that does take humility, and that goes against our, our pride, wanting to be the captain of our own ship. But the motivation that these Pharisees and Sadducees had for studying the Old Testament was really self-serving. They're trying to master the scriptures for their own glory instead of God's glory. Now, let's stop and instead of just throwing tomatoes at them, let's think about ourselves for a moment here. All right? Uh, could we do this? Could this happen to us? You know, you can know a lot about the Bible without knowing the God of the Bible personally, 
if you approach it like a Pharisee. And I know people who know a lot about the Bible who don't believe, who do not have a personal relationship with God. So we have all kinds of folks in this room. Some of you are, are new believers. We praise God you're here. Some of you may not yet really know the Lord, and we're really thankful you're here. Some of you have been walking with God. You've been a Christian maybe for decades. Some of you have been studying the Bible for a long time. So let me talk to you Bible scholars who are here, right? Let me remind you that the ultimate value of the Bible is that it is God's self-disclosure to us. So as we read the Bible, let's be careful not to worship the Bible. Let's worship God who reveals himself to us through the Bible. And let's not worship ourselves by showing off how much we know. Let's read it daily. Let's hide it in our heart. But let's be sure to worship the triune God. Let's make sure that we treasure the God of the Bible as we do so. So let's make sure that we don't miss the big point when we read God's Word. Well, Jesus here in this text, he continues to lament unbelief. And that's what we see. He's, he's, he's lamenting their unbelief. In verse 41, he says, I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. And you know, Jesus said that. Let me just pause this for a moment. Uh, in another place, in Matthew 24, 5, as he was prophesying um, the end and the, destruction of, the coming destruction of Jerusalem, he says, for many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. He said that in Matthew, in Matthew 24, 5. And the historian Josephus records that there were many pretend messiahs before the destruction of the temple in 78 AD. In fact, there were 63 of them. Pastor Kent Hughes writes, these false prophets gained adherence because their claims corresponded with men's desires. They offered easy victory and political and material power while Christ offered a cross. Jesus continues in verse 44. He, he laments, how can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? So these religious leaders who spent so much time parsing out Old Testament texts desired glory and praise from people instead of God. What do you think we, do you think there's a warning there for us? You bet there is. Kids, when you learn about the Bible in Sunday school, and maybe you ask a question, or maybe you make a comment, is it so that others will think you're smart and spiritual? Or is it so that you can really know God better? You know, I could ask, I could ask that same question of adult three, or adult two, or adult one. Are we showboating for each other sometimes? Or, or is it really about a desire to, to fall in deeper love with the Lord? When we pray in a, in a life group setting or a quad or an ABF, are we praying to God or to the people around us? And you need to ask yourself that question. Next time you, you're, you're in, a, in a situation with some other Christians and you're praying, 
Are you, are you, are you trying to kind of garner some kind of approval in the group? Or are you really talking from your heart directly to God? Or let's think about the converse, the inverse. When we're in public, do we pray? What I mean by that is, before a meal at a restaurant, do you bow your head and give thanks to the Lord as you would at home, in your home, for that meal? Are are you more concerned about God's glory or about what others might think? That's the question. And Jesus' lament that this group cared more about their own glory instead of God's glory. Jesus continues in verse 45, do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There's one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Now notice here how he specifically invokes Moses. Moses was the the writer of the law, and Moses was the one in whom they they set their hope. I mean, he was the hero. And the irony here is that these, these religious leaders were experts in the law, and they thought they had mastered it, but they had missed the entire point. The law of Moses demonstrated man's inability, humanity's inability to please God, and it it shows us our need of a Savior to rescue us from our sins. And and Moses himself knew that his people would forsake their God. And so at the end of his life, we read this interesting text in Deuteronomy, at the end of his life, Moses instructed the Levites in Deuteronomy 31, 26, he said, take this book of the law, this is right after he had delivered it to them, Take this book of the law and put it by the side of the ark of the covenant of the Lord your God, that it may be there for a witness against you. So here you have Jesus, thousands of years later, claiming that that book is a witness against unbelief. And so the question for us today when we think about the Bible the law, the Bible, the, the God's revelation to us, we have to ask ourselves, do we seek to master Scripture or do we seek to be mastered by the Scriptures? There's a lot of, a lot of applications here, I think. Um, but do we seek, as people who value Bible study, okay, as we do so, do we seek to master Scripture or do we seek to be mastered by the scriptures. And I actually think that, that catechisms and, and statements of faith can be helpful, but we need to be sure that the Bible is our foundation. Do you understand what I mean by that? Um, a, a statement of faith is a way of summarizing the essentials, right? Um, our, basically what we might call our systematic theology, our, our beliefs about God in a system, in a package. And they, we sign it. I mean, I've signed a statement that, that I believe that the doctrinal statement of, of our church is true. But we need to make sure that even as we do so, we are always mastered by Scripture. And, and so if one day we see a text in the Bible that seems to contradict something that our, our, our statements of faith or our catechism say, we've got to be very careful not to just dismiss the text and keep reading. Be like, well, that's, you know, can't really mean what it says. No, you study it and you wrestle with it. 
And that's, that's actually how we have statements of faith that as, they, as they are. It's a result of a whole lot of wrestling over a whole lot of hundreds of years, right? Early Christians wrestled uh, with, with the doctrine of Jesus. Like, how can it be God and man? And they spent several centuries kind of trying to figure that out and figure out the Trinity. But let's make sure that we are always going to the Word of God. We never have the right to cut a, a part away, to trim a, trim a section that we don't like. Once you do that, you don't have an authority anymore. Now you're mastering it. You decide what's, what's, what's true, what you follow, what you don't. But maybe a, a, a more convicting question would, we, would be, do we obey it? Well, you know, what you do shows what you really believe more than what you say. I mean, I can say I believe the statement of faith of our church, but if my actions contradict that, that shows that I, I don't really. So do we obey Scripture, the, the, especially the stuff that convicts us? Let, let's be sure that we don't use our Bible to hammer other people while not allowing God's Spirit to chisel away at the sin in our own hearts. Well, as we land the plane, let me, let me ask you a question, okay? And let me just remind you that, that most of this chapter is Jesus, that we're finishing chapter five, is Jesus talking to and rebuking and lamenting over these Jewish religious leaders. He's confronting their unbelief, right? That's a lot of words to these people who are rejecting him. And John said in, in verse 16 that they were actually persecuting him. So, so why would he take all this time instead of just with his disciples? Why does he spend all this time talking to people who hate him, who are against him, who are his opponents? Um, um, you know, bringing these witnesses even against them. Well, I think we find the answer tucked away here in verse 34. Jesus says in verse 34b, but I, I say these things so that you may be saved. Even as he's condemning the unbelief of these religious leaders who are his enemies, he, he says, I'm telling you these things so that you may be saved. And you know, there's good reason to believe that Nicodemus, the Pharisee, considered the claims of Christ and believed. And the reason I say that is we see him in John chapter 9, 39, assisting Joseph of Arimathea and frankly, bringing a huge amount of, of money in terms of spices to anoint the body, I mean, in a grand fashion, um, assisting Arimathea in burying the, the body of the crucified Christ. And that's an act of devotion. Later, we read in, in Acts chapter 6, verse 7, and the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Did you catch that? A whole bunch of these Jewish priests who had rejected Jesus before, after Pentecost, became obedient to the faith. So here's the point I want you to remember, and that is Jesus gave his life to save his enemies, of whom were we. You might think, um, you know, I... I've never been the enemy of Jesus. Yes, you have been. And, and if you don't know him today, you might be a, a great person. You might be um, a great person to have a meal with, you know, um, very interesting. And, and, but if, if you don't have a relationship with him, if you aren't covered in his blood, if you don't believe that he's the son of God, you really are God's enemy. 
You disbelieve what he has said and revealed. And, and, and you, 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 you do not want to submit your life to his lordship. You want to be the captain of your own boat, and that means that you're rejecting him. And frankly, every sin you commit is an affront to his holiness because he made you. He has ownership rights, and you're not doing what he made you to do. So you're acting as an enemy to him. And Jesus gave his life for his enemies. And we see this explicitly written in Romans chapter 5, verse 8. But God shows his love for us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Now maybe you've been sitting on the fence. You haven't yet fully yielded your life to Jesus. Maybe you're willing to come to church today, but you're holding back true faith and true devotions. You have not yielded to him yet. I want to call you and exhort you today to get off the fence. Hold back no more. Jesus is the Son of God. He died for you, and he will save you if you believe. And we're going to move into a moment of communion. And as I normally try to remind folks, this is, a, this is, a, um, this is an act of worship, and it, it's an act of witness as well to our faith as Christians. And so, this is, this, is a, this is something for believers. And as we pass the plate, I would like to encourage you, if you don't know him, if, if, you, don't, if you have not truly fully yielded your soul, your life to Jesus Christ, okay? If that hasn't happened yet in your life. Uh, or if you're in a, in a place of unconfessed sin and, and, and you just, there's, a, there's, a, there's a, a problem in your relationship with God and you haven't yet confessed that, please don't take communion today, okay? We, we will respect you for that decision um, we appreciate you being with us. We won't think any less of you. We'll think more of you, you know, if, if you choose not to take communion. But I would say, if you're a believer, um, and you've, you, there's a, a, a problem between you and the Lord, right now is the time for you to confess that. You can confess your sins and, and, and have, that, have that wiped out and cleansed right now. Uh, you could have that, that barrier in that relationship removed um, right now. And if you don't know the Lord, I would encourage you to not only not take communion, but right now, um, open your heart up to him and ask him to, to save you, to save your soul. And, and he will. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six 26 records the, these words um, about, about communion by, from the Apostle Paul. And he says, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So we too get to be witnesses today through communion. So let's bow our heads, and I'd like to, to call those who will be serving us to come forward as I, as I pray, and we'll spend some time preparing our hearts to commune with God. Let's pray together. Oh Lord God, we, we thank you for the gospel of Christ. Lord, we thank you for your word that discloses to us our, our lost state, our, our need of a Savior. And gives us, in, 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 with so much clarity, um, the story of how Jesus Christ came into this world and, and taught and, and demonstrated through his, his signs and his healings, your power, your love, your mercy. 
Thank you that it tells us that while we were your enemies, he, he died on the cross for our sins. So we want to honor him now during this time. We want to remember that sacrifice that he made, and we say thank you. And I pray in his name. Amen.